I'm Rob Hopkins and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. It's about how the first step to slaying a dragon is for one person to say, probably drunk in a bar somewhere, I bet it can be done though. These are the words of fantasy author Alexandra Rowland, whose novel A Conspiracy of Truths was published late last year. The quote captures the essence of an idea, a genre, which she coined called hope punk. Fantasy and sci-fi is a world rich in different genres, but as soon as I read how she described what the term meant to her, I realised she had important things to contribute to our ongoing discussion about imagination, in particular to the question of how our storytelling can help bring to life, in the here and now, the kind of future we want to create. Are you hope punk? You're about to find out. I started our fascinating conversation by asking her to tell me what hope punk means and how the term came about. Initially, I came up with the the word hope punk. It was actually kind of a a joke post at first on Tumblr. Uh, It was just something that sort of popped into my head and I I put it online and I didn't really think about it. Uh, And the entirety of the post, the first post was the opposite of grimdark is hope punk. Pass it on. Uh, And then people started responding, saying, like, I think I know what this means, but I'm, I'm not sure. And I want you, can you, can you give us a little bit more information about it? And I started really thinking about it and going like, oh, actually, this is something I deeply believe in. Uh, so if you're not familiar with Grimdark, first of all, it's a subgenre of fantasy where uh, it sort of assumes that when it comes to human nature, the glass is half empty uh, and that everyone has a core of malice and greed and selfishness and that uh, entropy is real and that entropy will succeed in the end, that we're in a kind of decline, as it were, uh, and that evil will more often triumph over good because evil has fewer qualms, uh, fewer moral qualms about uh, taking action than than good does. Uh, Hope Punk responds to this to say, I don't agree with that. I think the glass is neither half empty nor half full. There's water in the glass and that's important. Uh, It says that people are petty and cruel and mean, but also people are amazing and that our communities are capable of incredible things and that we are so, we all as much as we have that core of of malice and evil, we also have a huge capacity to go, to, to do good and to take care of each other and to make the world a better place. Uh, and so Hope Punk is about fighting for a better future and uh, taking action and doing radical kindness. And not a lot of times people want to soften it and think that it is about just like, sort of fluffy self-care and that's certainly a part of it but there is also i i want to i want to emphasize that punk is the operative half of the word hope punk you know it's uh about actively taking action that doesn't make a lot of sense but there you have it uh and standing up against authority and and being the person to stand up for people who are being marginalized or oppressed or hurt by people in authority. When you think of that term, what people listening to this or reading this think, what, what would what would be examples that they would have come across of that, that they can go, oh, she means like... 
Gandhi, I think, is the the uh, first one that pops into my head, um, especially like the incident at the Darasan Assault Works where Gandhi led hundreds or thousands of people uh, up to the, the salt factory and they knew that they were going to be beaten down and they just kept calmly walking up. Nonviolent resistance is definitely a part of Hope Punk. Um, so many uh, artists and legendary figures are also Hope Punk. John Lennon, Robin Hood, uh, Harriet Tubman, you know, all of these these amazing historical figures who have looked at a terrible atrocity that was happening around them and said, I'm going to say something about it, or I'm going to do something about it. And I'm going to potentially put myself in the line of fire to get it done because this is important. In what ways is the concept of utopia helpful? And in what ways is the concept of utopia unhelpful? So I have a, uh, not to to do too much self-promotion, but I do want to mention, I I, uh, talk a lot about, uh, the concept of false utopias uh, on an episode of my podcast. Uh, it's episode one of Be the Serpent. Uh, and in that one, we, we discuss about how uh, Hope Punk is not, a, or sorry, not Hope Punk, uh, utopia is not a stable system. Uh, it is, it's something that you can achieve for five moments or an hour, but utopia, as it's classically understood, requires humans to give up being fully human. It requires us to give up being selfish and greedy. And that's something that I think that we can choose to do consciously, but it is baked into our our bones and we're never going to fully escape it. So we're never going to fully achieve utopia. That said, it's not, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep trying. It's something that we should always, always be striving for with the realization that we're never going to quite reach it. Um, the asymptote approaches, approaches zero, but never meets it. Uh, because like, yeah, like I said, a human, human nature is, is contains both the capacity for good and evil and utopia requires people to be just good, um, to be just taking care of each other, to be not having a bad day and snapping at someone. Because if you like go home and you snap at your spouse, then suddenly your spouse isn't in utopia anymore. Utopia implies perfect happiness for everyone. Uh, the other problem with utopia is that so much of our society is based on the exploitation of people beneath us, whether that is people from marginalized groups or uh, people who are have have less uh, economic privilege than we do and to have a utopia we have to have to have a, a perfect utopia we have to have a utopia for all of us um a lot of people i think today would say that we already are living in a utopia because these are the people who have incredible amounts of power who never have to worry about anything and who don't mind particularly that there are millions of people beneath them who are are suffering and being exploited and living through the apocalypse, as it were. And that, the term grimdark is something I, I don't really read uh, fantasy books or <clears throat> fiction books very much. So I'd never come across the term grimdark before, um, but it seems to beautifully kind of capture uh, something that's really rampant in our culture. Why? Why, why is that, do you think? I, and it's, as somebody who reads more of that and has read, I, I presume, over a period of time, that kind of uh, fiction, have, have you seen a rise of grimdark over that time? And if so, why do you think that is? 
I think that we're actually in a current decline of Grimdark, and I believe, uh, so, uh, as an example, uh, George R. R. Martin's, uh, Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire series are a perfect example of Grimdark. Sorry, what? I hated them. <laughs> uh, he's, he's an amazing author from a technical standpoint. Grimdark doesn't speak to me personally. Uh, and I think that a lot of times when we see trends in literature, like the, the rise of Grimdark really started in like the 80s and 90s, uh, and then it started, I think, peaked in like 2000 or so and has been falling off since then. Uh, I think that it's in response to the culture. So when we're in a, a period of more stability where things are more okay, then the literature and the stories that we tell remind us that things are not okay and that we always have to be on, on guard against these, these uh, more negative parts of human nature. And when the society around us is crumbling, when it seems like uh, climate change is very real and the apocalypse is coming any day now uh, and that I might not live to see 50, uh, I think the, the response there is, again, to tell stories that go against what's currently happening to remind us that this might be happening, but it's not guaranteed and that there is an alternative and that we need to keep thinking in in different ways and telling stories and remembering the other the other side of the coin, you know. So when we start feeling too, when life starts getting maybe a bit too easy or we start feeling more optimistic, the grimdark brings in a bit of balance and when we get into the trump age you know we need we need the hope punk so they they both act as a sort of a counterweight to us getting too carried away that's that's my theory at least i mean that's like what i have noticed from my own perceptions uh, i don't have a lot of science to back it up but yeah I, I have the feeling that uh we storytellers do a lot of this too shall pass so what view is the role of fantasy and science fiction in, in helping us in the real world to achieve, to, to, to change the future and our expectations of it. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, science fiction, fantasy, uh, horror as well, uh, all the speculative genres do a lot to, uh, think about worlds that could be, uh, in literary fiction, I see a lot of people writing about the world that is. And I think that that is, you know, also a, a very important thing to do. I, um, as a science fiction and fantasy author, I, um, look ahead and I examine uh, what what we could have as I as I said before and and the world that we could have um, for example in my my fantasy books one thing that I am doing very consciously is to write fantasy books without homophobia or without assuming homophobia um, there may be times when I uh, examine it in a little bit more more depth but the the fantasy novels that I have currently written now uh, all exist in a world where queer people are just accepted just because like that's the world that I want I want people to be able to uh, live the lives that they choose and love the people that they love uh, and have adventures slaying dragons while they're doing it, you know? Uh, everyone deserves the, those kinds of stories uh, just as much as anyone else does. And um, telling stories are the ways that we get those stories for people in real life. You know, given, given that, that, that there is the possibility that on the other side of this dystopian uh, hump is, is, is the most amazing future that we all dream of, what advice would you give to people who 
who want to be able to tell the stories of that possible future in the best way they can. How can we become the best storytellers of the near future that we could create, a, a future where it turned out okay? Um, I think the first part is loving yourself, and I mean this in a different way than most people do, because when you love yourself, it's okay for you to make mistakes, and it's okay for you to um, accept and forgive yourself for making mistakes, uh, and once you have done that, then it makes it a lot easier for you to approach the parts of yourself where you have made mistakes, or where you have hurt people, or where you have espoused a um, viewpoint of the world that has contributed to racism or misogyny or uh, classism or other things that that make the world a little bit more shitty. Living in the society that we do, those things have been forced upon us kind of by default. Um, those are the stories that we have been told before. And to a lot of people feel that when... Um, and, and one of the wonderful things that's happening now is that we're getting so many people speaking out against it and telling stories about how racial microaggressions have affected them personally, how homophobia has uh, affected them personally, and really getting a platform to shout about it and to make their voices heard for the first time in history. Um which is fantastic. But the lashback is that now a lot of people feel that, for example, my family is extremely white, is extremely, extremely white. And one of the, the I, I recently um, uh, estranged myself from an aunt because I accused her of being racist. And that was kind of the worst possible thing that I could have done to her is just to call her a word to describe her behavior. And it was a true word and it was accurate for what she was doing. But instead of taking a step back and looking at her actions and thinking critically about her actions, she decided that the word itself was the, the terrible thing. The word itself was worse than her actions were. And that's kind of an example of the sort of power that stories have when just one word can completely tear down someone's day. Uh, and but we live in a racist society and all of us have um, internalized some of that. And we need to be doing whatever we can to look inside ourselves and to do the hard personal work of untangling our, our biases and reprogramming our minds to get rid of this toxic thing that has been um, kind of imposed on us by the society that we live in. Um, and that requires accepting that we have screwed up and it requires accepting that we're going to screw up again. And screwing up is okay. If you then take the time to learn from your mistakes and try not to do that again. And that's really, really hard if you don't love yourself while you're doing it because you tear yourself down and it's not fun and it doesn't feel good. And it's, if you don't love yourself, then you're constantly in a position of defending yourself and and trying to convince yourself that you should be loved. Uh, and that also doesn't put you in a good position to be vulnerable to other people. 
so so I don't going back to the, your original question, I think that's the key. Like we have to learn how to be more vulnerable to each other. We have to learn how to be kinder to each other. And we have to do the hard work of like looking inside ourselves to see how we haven't been kind to ourselves and how we haven't been kind to other people as well. Um, mapping that on to, to storytelling then I think is, is quite an easy next step. Once we can be, once we can be doing that for ourselves and for the people around us, it makes it easier to tell stories about people doing the same thing. One, the guy, James Mackay, I just sent you the interview to, <clears throat> one of the things he said, I thought was really interesting was he said, you know, it's much harder. People people find dystopian visions of the future much easier because uh, they're kind of more exciting. There's more drama in in dystopian stories because things go wrong and people fight with each other. And 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 actually, to 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 tell stories about a future where it turned out okay, and you know, like a world of of solar panels isn't quite as exciting as a world of fracking. Uh, or uh, you know that actually, how how do we make a utopian future more exciting than a dystopian one, more interesting, more compelling as a narrative than a dystopian one? Sure. Um, well, I think that's really easy. Now we're going to get into some sort of writing craft advice here, um, because like the thing that makes stories exciting is stakes and. Uh, when there are big stakes, when there's lots of drama, that's obviously very exciting. I think that there are absolutely ways to work in, in stakes to utopian fiction. Um, solar panels might not seem uh, as, as sexy uh, as something dramatic and loud like, like fracking, but I think that um, in the right hands, it's, it's about how you approach it and it's about how you frame it. Um, and if I were going to, to tell a, a, a story like that, I think the, the genre that people use there is solar punk, uh, where punk is a little bit more of an aesthetic choice rather than a, an operative half of the word. Uh, like solar panels um, break, solar panels can be stolen. Uh, you know, it's still a, a resource that people are using. And so if you think about it in the way as, as any other resource, it's, we, we talk about solar uh, solar power being a renewable resource, but we still need that sort of inter um, inter what's the word I'm looking for that tool between us and and the resource. It's not something that we can just directly put our hands on and use. Uh, we need a way to to convert it. And so if your your tools break, then that's stakes. Uh, if it, your tools are taken from you, that stakes. And suddenly you are in a position of, of mortal danger again, where your very lifestyle is being threatened, where your life is being threatened. Uh, and so the, the more we can, I think one of the reasons that um, people have, put, have possibly felt like utopian fiction isn't as, as sexy as Grimdark is because the the writers who are writing about those futures want the softness so badly that they forget that they have to make their characters earn it. Uh, and just like we ourselves have to earn it by fighting for it. Um, like, so if you, if you want to, to write a story uh, with that kind of theme, then put your characters through hell first. Uh, I mean, and because Utopia is all about the, the happy ending, right? Uh, and 
uh, just to bring yet another uh, literary genre into it, uh, romance novels do this amazingly, amazingly well, because one of the requirements of a romance novel that defines it as a romance novel is that everyone gets a happily ever after, or at least a happy, happy for now. Uh, but that doesn't make romance novels boring. It makes them super, super exciting, because romance, no uh, or romance authors have figured out how to make their characters earn that happy ending. It's not something they just get handed. It's something that they always have to fight for. Uh, it's something that they have to earn. It's something that they have to do the personal personal work and, and personal growth in order to achieve it. Otherwise, it's impossible. Uh, it's something that they have to fight for just as much as characters in a fantasy novel have to uh, fight the, the dark overlord uh, and defeat him. Uh, and it has resulted in, in romance novels being one of the biggest, sorry, I think the biggest uh, and most lucrative uh, genres in the industry, uh, which is definitely nothing to sniff at. Um, so you kicked this thing off with your, with your Tumblr post about punk. Where has it gone? Like, what, what, like, you sort of unleashed this thing. Where, where has it gone? Where has it taken root? How have you seen it spread? What has its impact been? It's kind of weird and surreal, man. Uh, like, I never expected it to, to be going this far. Uh, there was the, the article on Vox.com, of course. Uh, I was asked to be on NPR to talk about it, uh, which, yeah, it was uh, really incredible. Uh, I had a wonderful time. That was one of the most fun things that I've done. It was on uh, 1A, and I can send you the link if you'd like it. Uh, uh, you can listen to the episode now. It's uh, It's been put online. Uh, it's been um, starting last January. Uh, it started getting talked about on panels at science fiction and fantasy conventions. Uh, I was first asked to be, uh, I was invited to Aresia, uh, which is a convention in Boston, to talk about Hope Punk on a panel there. Uh, and I think last year, I want to say there were between like six and ten uh, panels about hope punk or hopeful fiction uh, on uh, at conventions all across uh, the the country, and I think uh, one or two abroad as well, uh, which has been amazing. Um, there have been a couple, uh, like it's definitely seems like it's getting some mainstream traction now. People are are starting to hear about it. Uh, I've seen a couple like celebrities reblog my my. Uh, one article, or one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy uh, post, which is very weird and surreal. Uh, yeah, so it's it seems like it's it seems like it is something that is really resonating with a lot of people, and that makes me so grateful and so hopeful for the future because this is something that clearly is is singing to people's hearts in a way that makes their hearts sing back in harmony. Yeah, and I love you. You you said that being kind is a political act. Do you see, do you see that as a rising thing? Do you see that in the in the politics that people are increasingly turning to now? Is that is that sort of a growing part of our political mix? Do you think? Oh yeah, I, I absolutely think so. Um, just the amount that I have seen people get more politically active in the last year has been amazing. Um, uh, being kind also. Uh, I want to, to point out, like, kindness doesn't necessarily mean softness. Kindness can mean standing up for someone who's being bullied. Uh, if someone has a gun to your friend's head, punching the guy with the gun is an act of kindness because you're saving 
you're saving someone through that. So kindness is not always soft. Kindness is not necessarily passive. Uh, kindness is something that you can go out and, and fight for. Going to a protest is um, in one, if you frame it in a particular way, an act of kindness because you're doing um, something for the the future. You're, you're contributing to the future. You're um, putting more Putting more good in the world, I think, is how I would define doing kindness. Uh, if you see someone being shouted at by a bigot on the subway, just standing up for them and and uh, having their back is an act of kindness. And being kind also is something that requires so much bravery sometimes and so much willpower and self-certainty and being aware of of who you are and seizing an opportunity when it happens, because sometimes these opportunities are so brief and it's something that we only see a glimpse of. And if you're not prepared to jump on it right away, then it can pass you by. And on the other hand, you have to be careful of jumping on it too soon because there are people who don't necessarily want help. Um, so it is this balancing act between like, helping immediately, but also knowing when to step back and keep your hands off because someone else is also competent and has, has got a handle on it. There's a question that I've asked everybody that I've interviewed for this book, which is if, uh, if it had been you who had been elected as the president of the US in 2016 and you had run on a platform of make America imaginative again, so your sense was we're facing all these huge challenges we live in a time where we focus all our attention on innovation rather than on imagination innovation being something that you do when your fundamental model works okay and you need to improve it and tweak it but imagination being something you need to do when your fundamental model is fucked and you have to completely reimagine it because it's a suicide driving over a cliff at great speed so we need to really uh, um, bring this sort of radical imagination to the forefront in education, in public life, uh, in home life, in policy making, in everything. And if you had been elected with that as your political platform, what might you do in your first hundred days in the Oval Office? Uh, I think that the, the core things would be, um, I, I think I have three things to make America imaginative again. Um, First of all, children are the future. Uh, that's not a, a cliche. That's something that's absolutely true. We need to be doing so much more for them. We need to be giving them the best possible uh, education that we can. We need to be funding schools so much better than, than we are, both in terms of uh, paying teachers, making te sure that teachers have the supplies that they need, making sure that the school buildings themselves are safe for children. Um, and are fostering an environment of, of creativity and learning. I think that um, this is something that would take longer than 100 days, but I think that we need to revamp the whole way that we approach uh, education with children because the way that we educate children now is very much about preparing them to be factory workers. And increasingly that is not how the future is shaping up to be. Uh, the more and more we automate uh, factory uh, production, the less we're going to need people who are used to sitting in one place doing something tedious for hours and hours and hours at a time. We need people who uh, can think more critically and 
who can look at the world around them and do the jobs that machines will never be able to do. Uh, and the current system of education that we have is not something that can ever, ever accomplish that. So that needs to be completely torn down and restructured. Uh, but in the meantime, in the first 100 days, just give teachers a lot more money. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's 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 stages we can do this, like short term goals, long term goals. Uh, with the tools that we currently have available, let people do the best possible job that they can with them and then get them better tools uh, while they're working on that. Uh, the second thing that I would do is to uh, funnel a whole lot more uh, money into the arts. Uh, I think that we can be doing a lot more to support artists, to support uh, the uh, accessibility of art to the vast majority of America, because there's so many people who don't get art in their daily lives, That's and that's so important to them. Uh, there's that protest song from, uh, from ages and ages ago called Bread and Roses, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic, fantastic song. It's on YouTube. Um, give us bread, but give us roses uh, like we need the, the essentials to survive. We need bread, but we also need beauty in our lives as well. Uh, so just making art more accessible to to people making uh, and not just like when I say art. Also, a lot of people will think of uh, museums or what is kind of. Uh, held in privilege and prestige by a very, very small uh, percentage of the population, which are the white people in power. Uh, but I mean art as something that everyone can do, something that everyone has access to, something that is a vibrant and lively expression of their culture. Uh, we need to be funding spaces for that to happen, to uh, give people places to, to express themselves. Uh, and then the, the third thing I think that we need to, I think I have a, a fourth thing after this as well. Uh, <laughs> I just have a lot of ideas, uh, we need to, to keep funding the, the big government institutions that, uh, are imagining the future as well, specifically NASA. Uh, you know, NASA has been doing so much to, uh, encourage technology and to encourage, uh, thinking in the very, very long term, you know, like they are looking out into space and now we're, we're exploring Mars, which is incredible. Uh, and we're, we are capable of doing so many amazing, amazing things if we start thinking that they might be possible. Uh, and if we're willing to, to take a chance on them, we're going to pay for this by taxing the shit out of all the rich people, by the way. <laughs> Yay. And abolishing tax like in Ireland where they used to have a thing where, uh, artists didn't have to pay tax. Yeah, I think they still have that. Yeah, yeah, that was the, the fourth thing that I was going to say is um, like completely revamping the way that we approach uh, taxing the people who are creating art. Uh, I love, I I think they still have that in Ireland, don't they? The the uh, artists, you can apply for a, a waiver on your, your income tax um, goals. So yeah, like right now, I as a, a freelance author am... I have to pay self-employment tax and that's really high. And like, I would love to have more of that money. So the people who are creating art should be, should have less of a reason to, to pay for the art that they're doing. Like they should be paid for their work rather than having to pay for the privilege of being an artist. You said in the article that I read of yours, uh, first you must understand that everything is stories. And I wonder if you could just 
expound on what you mean by that. Oh my God, I would love to expound on that. <laughs> I'll go buy my book, A Conspiracy of Truths. I'm joking. So I just, I just said that like the childhood human brain is, is designed to absorb information as quickly as possible. What that is, is pattern recognition. That's what we're doing. And stories are just patterns put in words. Uh, so you look at the night sky and instead of seeing a random scattering of stars, your brain wants to impose order upon it. Uh, you draw constellations out of nothingness. You, uh, look at a, a random movement of say caribou and you impose a story on that too. Uh, one of the reasons I just read an amazing article about the, the reason that we as, as humans used uh, oracular devices like tarot cards or like casting the bones or reading the entrails. And it's because randomness is something that can be very, very useful in a pre-industrial society. The world is random and sometimes we need to think in a random kind of way, but the human brain doesn't want to. The human brain is all about order and structure. And so we, we impose as much order and structure on the world around us as possible. And draw stories out of out of nothingness we we frame history as a story rather than as the actions of people uh because it's easier to to comprehend and to understand uh when framed as a story economics is a story money is a story you look at it at a dollar bill and you ask yourself what is this this is a piece of paper and ink and a story because if just paper and ink do not have an inherent value, right, other than maybe a couple pennies, which are also a story, um, you can't even talk about stories without talking about stories. Uh, but you look at a, a dollar bill and it's it's ink and paper and a story. And the story is the valuable part. The story is the part that says this is worth one candy bar. You look at at everything we do, the, the civilization that we have, the, the rules of politeness and etiquette are also just a story that we're telling each other so that it's possible for us to live in such close uh, and huge communities with each other without going completely crazy and murdering each other. Because if there's rules, then there's a game that we can all play together and we can all play pretend and, and, and have this civilization and uh, not devolve immediately into, into uh, going completely crazy uh, and killing all of, all of each other. Uh, so yeah, the, the whole world is, is made out of stories because that is the default tool that any human uses to understand the world around us. 